Hello, and welcome to the Sunday Sermon Cast from Bethel Evangelical Free Church on Washington Island, Wisconsin. I'm Rick Smith, and I've been here at Bethel since 2016, enjoying this great church on this spectacular place off the northern tip of Door County, Wisconsin. This message comes from our Sunday morning service here on the island, and it's geared towards discovering what the Bible has to say to us in our everyday lives. So, God's blessing on you, and thanks for joining with us wherever you are today. This last month or two, as you've looked at the news and listened to all that's going on, it's, it's been atrocious, hey? The things that have been going out and going forth, the, the, the things that have been coming out from people's lives and their pasts, the atrocities that they've had to endure and walk through have been hard. Uh, we hear, it seems like, another scandal every day. And as we think through life and walking through life, it's just, this world seems so toxic, doesn't it? And how do we respond to that? What is this all about that we should walk in this? And I, again, as you read the news or look at current events, there's so many indicators that we're off and we're struggling to get back on but by struggling I mean struggling to decide whether we want to even try to get back on because it's just so bad who do we trust who can we rely on and depend upon many retreat into their homes looking for seclusion and just keep me away from others I want nothing to do with it some people call that cocooning They'll go to their work and then drive home and come through their electric garage door and then close it as they get in and have nothing to do with this world around us. And and others are ready to take offense at any potential slight and respond out of the anger that's deep within them. Some are trying to hold on to a reputation that they have, but know that there's things in their past that's, that could come out. And again, we've seen that. We've seen that people have used their positions to be unjust, to oppress others, to abuse them, to take advantage of them. Uh, last week we looked at the book of Amos and, and with this idea of what is in God's heart. And Corin in Amos was this idea that taking care of people, working for justice, this matters. This is important. And to not do that, to turn our eye away from justice and, and oppression is to draw the ire of God, to draw the anger of God, because he stands for justice and against oppression. But as we think through current events, Many people have made tragic errors in their lives, and, and some of these things are coming up. Well, how do we deal with them? How do we work in their lives, and what is our response to them? Many in this world will choose to, to, to drag them through as much as they can. Well, as we look at Jesus, and... And part of this series we've, we've done after Mark has been an extension of how do we live out what Jesus calls us to? 
what are the disciplines that we're supposed to walk through and, and listen to and, and follow through on? What is Jesus all about? And, and as we look at these news headlines again and again and again, and, and, and you know, whether it's a Hollywood mogul or an actor or a senator or a candidate or, or even ex-presidents, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of bad things going on. How do we react to this in this world? What would Jesus do? Well, I, I was goofing around with titles to this message. I called it Restoring Faith in a Toxic World, and one of the things I was play, playing around with was Jesus and the scandalous woman he loved. Um, because Jesus hangs around some women that at different points you think, what is he doing? What are you doing? His disciples even asked that. And, and so I'd like to look at a couple stories from John's gospel. The first of them is in John chapter 4. And it's the woman at the well. It's a, it's a story that's if you've been in church at all, you're, you're pretty familiar with. Because it's so rich in insights into what's important to God and and to Jesus and live in life. And so if you have your Bibles, I ask that you open to John chapter 4, starting in, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more and more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord heard this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. All right, so some... some uh, map information. Judea is kind of more southern in the in Israel area and Galilee is to the north and between Jerusalem and Galilee is a place called Samaria, which is a place where Jews didn't like to hang out much. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. 
Uh, before we proceed on, I want to stop in these first couple of verses here and, and just note there's a bunch of things that are off in this story. That as you look at the dynamics of what's going on, it just can't help but raise some questions. Uh, some of them cultural and, and part of the geography of the land. Uh, Jesus is at this well, and he's in Samaria. So, uh, again, Samaritans and Jews traditionally do not, do not get along. The Jews would have looked at Samaritans as half-breeds because when, when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom, they brought people out, ex- exiled them out, and brought other people in from other lands, and so there was intermarrying. They were not pure Jewish stock. And so the Jews in the south who tried to maintain more of that looked down on the Samaritans. But again, a Jewish enclave in Galilee as well as in Jerusalem, they had to travel through these places. But, but there's this woman coming to this well at noon, which in that time, in that culture, he really didn't do that. If you've been in the deserts, noon is the time that's really hot and dry. And if you're going to get water, if you're going to do heavy loads and chores, you go in the morning. So why is this woman coming at noon? We'll get the answer in a minute. But it's just something that's off. And, and, then, and then there's things about Jesus that are off as well. What is he doing talking to this Samaritan woman. That's, there's a twofold thing there. Why is he talking to a Samaritan? Because they don't associate. I mean, he begins the conversation. He asks for help. And, and that it's a woman raises at least this specter of, well, this is, a, this, is a, this is a little iffy. You're not supposed to address a woman, especially alone, and especially if you're a good, decent Jewish rabbi. This is not okay. And as they begin their conversation, Jesus, having asked her for the drink, uh, she says, well, um, how are you even talking with me? And then he, he, he says, well, if you knew who you're talking to, you would ask him and he would provide you with water. And she's like, hey, sir, where's your bucket? How do you think you're going to provide me anything? You don't have anything. So there's just all these little cues into the story that, that they're off enough to make you say, what's going on here? And Jesus is using all these details to begin a conversation with her that's going to move away from the thirst in his mouth at the moment to something that's deeper in her life. And, and as he continues the discussion, he begins talking about living water, that you'll not have to have thirst again. And in a desert climate, it's like, what are you talking about? That sounds wonderful. That sounds fantastic. Give me this. This, is, this would solve all the issues. And uh, so he asked, she asks him, give me this water. You're offering it. I want this water. And so then Jesus, again, curiously calls tells her to call her husband. In the story, we see he, he knows she doesn't have a husband. So what is he doing here? Her response is, I have no husband. And that's where he brings out his zinger. And he says, you are right when you say that. The truth is, 
you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. That's quite true. What's Jesus doing here? Well, in this, you could almost say scandalous way, begins a conversation with someone about the deepest things in life and crosses mores, standards, to reach out into her life. And so now he's addressed her real situation. What you said is quite true. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not. Well, it'd be interesting. How is he going to respond to that? Some people might just come unglued. How does this woman respond? Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So Jesus says, what you said is quite true. How does she respond here? I like this woman. <laughs> because, I mean, it, all of a sudden she says, Oh, I see what you're doing. I mean, have you ever been talking with someone and... and at some point along the way, you realize they were not speaking outrightly, but almost in riddles or in, in some deeper thing, that they were, they were leading towards something else. And you get this sense where when Jesus reveals that he knows all this about her life, it's like, oh, all right, so you're a prophet, which is an interesting description, I mean, a prophet would be someone who speaks on behalf of God, who brings a message from God. So she immediately connects him with having some message from God. And so, and knowing he's a Jew, says, all right, Mr. Riddle guy, riddle me this. You Jews worship in Jerusalem, and we worship on this mountain. So what's, what's the deal here? And then Jesus begins to talk about What's going to come? That, that something is coming. There's a change and transformation that's coming here that's going to be for all people. That this idea of finding some place, whether it's in Jerusalem or a mountain, is not going to be the thing anymore. But people are not going to worship in that place or location. But it's going to be something deeper and richer. It's not going to be about being seen and at some place. But on the other hand, 
of with whom you're connected. And that this connection is going to be in spirit and in truth. That it's the spirit of God who comes and works in our lives and, and has connection with us wherever we may be. And discovering truth and pursuing truth. That's what's going to count in terms of worship. And, and the, the woman is, is into this. And she, she has at least some grasp of, of, of Jewish theology and, and the anticipation of a Messiah that's going to come. So we know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this to us and understand it all. And, and Jesus says, the one you're talking to, that's me. I'm that one. Well, then our conversation gets interrupted because the, the disciples come and they happen upon this conversation, this kind of scandalous conversation. Jesus is talking to a woman. What is, what is going on? What is, what is he doing? This is, but I don't know if you noticed, there's a contrast here. This woman, she'll ask anything. She's perceptive, she's bright, she's curious, and, and as, as the conversation continues, she's like, all right, tell me this, and talk to me about this. And, and the disciples, they're more like, hmm, what's going on? What is he doing? But they don't have the boldness to approach him and say, Jesus, what are you doing? Well, the mo- woman moves on, and she takes this interaction and begins to tell people in the village. Now, this woman, having been outed as having had five husbands previously and now not having a husband, uh, maybe some indication why she was coming to the well at noon because her life was not what you call uh, the normal behavior for a woman in that culture. To have married so many men would have put her in some eyes as as being less than, that the things that she'd gone through, maybe she's the, the object of scorn or derision, of, of thinking that she is a scandalous woman. And so to avoid the interactions or the outright ignorance or the ignoring of her by the other woman who would have come to the well, she comes at, a, at an odd time. But now she takes this message and goes to the village and says, hey, check this out. Well, the disciples, in the meantime, are wondering, what is this about? What is he doing? And as the story presses forward, they they begin to kind of go around the edges of trying to figure out what's going on. And they begin to ask him. So the lady leaves in verse 30. Verse 31 picks up. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And there he is, speaking in riddles again, right? Seeking to draw them in on some level. Um, Well, the disciples are face value kind of guys, right? Then his disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? And so Jesus more explicitly says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so, in his interaction with his disciples, we, well, we get this well, we get this deeper picture of, of what Jesus is all about. Because I think that's a fair question, too. What is Jesus' goal here in talking with this woman? Well, clearly, just the dynamics of it, he wants to draw on her and talk with someone about the most important things about life, about coming to, to know who God is, and that it's not a Samaritan-Jewish thing, but, but it's, it's coming to worship him in spirit and in truth, that this is God's intention. And, and so he wants to reach the soul of life with the message of God's care and love. But then we have this story in the Bible. And, and so it's a decent question to say, all right, Spirit of God, why are we privy to this conversation? What are you trying to tell us by revealing this to us? Could it be that as Jesus breaks through these these barriers, whether they're, they're barriers ethnically or gender-wise, or however you might describe it, that exploding our prejudices and our sensibilities, that God's message needs to go across lines that, well, good people think maybe we shouldn't cross. But Jesus apparently crosses in this instant. What's motivating him? The disciple says, you need food. He says, I got food. And here's my food. To do the will of the one who sent me. To reap the harvest that's out there. And, and, and it's interesting that Jesus connects the harvest that's available to be reaped in Samaria. This isn't in Jerusalem or Galilee. Where he says these words among Samaritans. And then right on cue, all these Samaritans come looking for him because of the testimony of this woman. They come, we heard this woman. She said, he's told me everything I've ever done. And so he's like, we got to see this. And, and they urge him to stay for two days. And, and did you get that confession they had at the end of this? The last verse in this passage. We know this man really is the savior of the world. <laughs> He's not even died and rose again. And they're testifying that Jesus is that savior, that Messiah, the one that's been anticipated long before, it seems, those who are looking for it from their Jewish background find it. It's Samaritans who get this. 
And Jesus' point is, my will is to bring this forth and to reap the harvest of people so that they can know who God is and how it is that they can be reconnected with him. That the Lord cares about even these nasty Samaritans because they matter. They matter to him. Very quickly, I just like to read this other scandalous woman passage. It's in John as well, starting in verse 53 uh, into 8.11. Chapter 7, verse 53. Then, then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And leave your life of sin. We see in this story a life at the crossroads. She has been caught in the act, apparently. It's a little curious, though. Where's the other person in the act? Only the woman is brought before him. And Jesus, as he's been teaching, now stops and writes on the ground and eventually says, You're right. This is exactly right. Adultery is a sin. Punishable by death. And so, you without sin, have at it. Well, there's that zinger again, right? Mm, Okay. Me without sin. Okay, not me. I, I can't start. And the people drop away. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, says there no one. So then neither do I. Now go leave your life of sin and carry on. I think in these stories of Jesus with scandalous women, we see Jesus saying there's things that are important. That that bringing this message of, of God's care and love in this world is important. Again, we live in this toxic world right now where, where accusations are coming fast and furious and, and bad things have happened and, and people have been hurt and, and most of them have been done by men to women and these accusations we keep hearing about. And as we see Jesus standing for 
these women who have not maybe made good choices in their life, but still calling them, God cares for you. Your past is, yeah, not the best past. But walk with him now. Discover him now. Follow him. There is living water available to you. That's our gospel. That's this message that we have for this world. And it's not a message that comes out in anger and animosity and tension. But with caring and love for those who need to hear about God. This is an important work. I got a letter this week. It is from her. And he writes, Dear Pastor Rick, I'm writing to introduce you to myself, Herb Justinger and my wife Maggie, because Bethel Church is very special in our lives. As teens, we avoided the church. Well, you mentioned having been picked up by Pastor Lundberg, Merrill's dad, and Raymond Jensen, who was a farmer. They picked him up for Sunday school and VBS and et cetera. And so as teens, we avoided the church and its straight and narrow road, but we knew deep down it was the way. In 1949, Pastor Lundberg graciously officiated our, at our wedding at good old Bethel Church. When I started this letter, I... I didn't intend to get into the details of our salvation, but Bethel was so involved in the details, I feel I must share them with you because I request that you or a successor officiate at our Washington Island Memorial Funeral sometime in the future. Maggie is 91, and in the sixth year of advancing Alzheimer's, and I'm a year younger. With the Lord's help, I'm determined to keep a promise to her that while we both live, it would be together. In the early months of her malady, she was very angry and jealous and fearful. By the grace of God, it's gotten much better, and we remain at our home with help from an organization called First Light and from our two sons and daughter-in-laws who live 100 miles from Huntsville. In November 1958, Maggie and I were attending Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Neither of us were saved, but we chose a church we wanted for our two boys, Brian and Bruce. And I was pleased that year when they accepted Jesus at an Awana meeting. In mid-November, my younger brother Dudley suffered a ruptured appendix and was taken by Coast Guard boat on a stormy night to a waiting ambulance at Northport. It quickly became apparent that infection had spread uncontrollably and the family gathered to hope and pray. For he was age 26 with a wife and five children. I remember praying and trying to bargain with God on how I would attend church more often and would get my brother to do the same if only he would heal them. On that same Wednesday evening preceding Thanksgiving at Bethel Church, as related to me by Harold Greenfield, they were also fervently praying for Dudley. As they were departing prayer meeting, they asked one another, what if anything could they further do? Some of them knew the pastor at First Baptist in Sturgeon Bay, and they called to ask him to stop at the hospital. That dear man, Reverend Floberg, didn't wait until a convenient time, but went that night at about 9 or 10 p.m. When he arrived, I explained the situation, and he went into Dudley's room, but returned quite quickly to tell me he was in too much pain and fear to even recognize his presence. When I responded that someone has to speak to him about salvation, he asked me, What about you? Those were not the words I wanted to hear. But I had a strong sense that it was now or never, 
and I asked him to help me be saved. As we stood in the busy hospital corridor, I had a second strong sense that said, get on your knees. So I did, and he joined me. Then I went to Dudley and said, we must pray to God. And he said, yes, yes. And before I was able to say anything I felt was coherent, he said, dear Lord Jesus. And as best I remember, he amazingly fell peacefully asleep. About three hours later, he died. On the train to Chicago on Thanksgiving Day, that same strong sense demanded that I write a letter to Pastor Lundberg to confess my failures and slights toward him, which I did. But it took me a week or two to actually mail it. As Maggie suggested, I rewrite it and merely say, I'm sorry, and leaving out some embarrassing specifics. Finally, I mailed it as is, and the response was prompt. He forgave me and gave me great comfort as he pointed out from Romans that Dudley had called upon the name of the Lord, and he believed that he was saved. Until then, I feared I had totally failed my brother. Maggie accepted the Lord a couple months later. I trust this shows my deep feelings for Bethel Church, and I pray it will encourage you in your faithful work on Washington Island to trust that seeds faithfully sown don't always germinate at the speed we like to expect. I also tell you all this because I expect you may someday be called upon to conduct a memorial service for Maggie, me, or both of us, and I know it's especially difficult when you don't know so little. Jim and Marcia Gunlickson will be good sources of any desired additional information. Maggie is Jim's last living aunt. And it talks about a, a gift that he gave. The gospel. The gospel means something. It matters in people's lives. And to find ways to break through. To care for others in their love. And in their scorn, to take the mockery that maybe someone is giving and to be able graciously to, to take that and continue to pray. That's Jesus' method and that's Jesus' message. That's why he came. God, came, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. None of us comes to the cross bearing great righteousness, but failure and flaws. But Jesus says, I love you. And that's how we live this out in this toxic world. To remember that we look not at the words that are being said by people who have been lied to by this world and our adversary, but to recognize that they're captives and they need to hear that God loves them and offers a way back, no matter who it is. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we come here this day and your words, your stories, your actions are are just awe-inspiring. <laughs> Your ability to love beyond so much is astonishing. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love for these women and these stories, for your crossing barriers and giving us a model and a picture of what that looks like. 
And Father, help us to reach out to others in this world, no matter what race, color, sex, whatever it is, but to be able to bring your love, your transforming work, to be able to come and to worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit of God, fill us and guide us. We ask this through our brother Jesus. Amen. God bless you this day. Well, thanks again for listening. And to learn more about how you can connect with Bethel Community Church, check out our website at islandbethelchurch.com or join us for a service Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 1045. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.